How might we revolutionize education by streamlining workflow and designing better systems for teachers in school? Today on the show, I am joined by the incredible Angela Watson. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Oh, geez. This conversation. This conversation is so powerful. Angela Watson is a big thinker in education, and I'm so excited to share this interview with you. If you don't know her work, you are in for a potentially life-changing episode here. Angela was a classroom teacher for many years, but has made a name for herself by teaching educators how to be smarter, more effective teachers by rethinking how they use their time and shifting mindsets. If you're familiar with her work, perhaps through her 40-hour teacher workweek club, or maybe by listening to her podcast, Truth for Teachers, then you know how radically life-changing her message can be. Working nonstop does not make you a good teacher. In fact, excellent teachers do indeed rest. In this conversation, we talk about Angela's background, but of course, we go way deeper than that. We look into the origins of this profession and how we ended up in this current state of exhaustion and overwhelm. And guess what? It's not just fueled by COVID because we all know teacher burnout was a thing long before 2020. We also get into what's needed for true visionary leadership in our schools and the big, exciting projects that Angela's working on and launching. Okay, now it's time for me to slide out of the way and queue up my conversation with Angela Watson. Angela Watson, I am so excited to get to talk with you. I'll just start by saying thank you for everything you're doing in our field of education, especially this year. You're a gift, a leader for so many of us, and someone who is actively making this profession better. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you beginning with that because that is amazing. That's like exactly what I want to be doing is is making a difference in this field when this has just been like the worst year ever, I feel like. <laughs> so any little bit that I've yes. done is great. It literally has been, um, but you have been a light in this. And I would like to have a 17-hour interview with you, but that might not be cool and you might have other (laughs) things to do. So for those people who don't know you, which I'm shocked by, let's just start by you sharing who you are, where you live, and what you do. So I am based out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, We also have a, a house out in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, which is where I spend most of my time. Um, because it's just quieter, it's easier for me to write and focus, but my husband needs to work in New York. So kind of back and forth between the two places. Um, I taught in the classroom for 11 years and I've been doing instructional coaching freelance since 2009. So um, I work in, I've worked in all five boroughs of New York City. And then also now I just kind of travel around the country and, and do work as well. So, I mean, obviously since COVID, a lot of things have been online that used to be in person, as, as I think a lot of other people can relate to, too. But um, my work encompasses um, uh, podcasting, writing books, creating courses, um, PD, all kinds of awesome stuff like that. So I feel like my job is to actually listen to teachers because not enough people really listen. And right. so I try to really center that, to really be paying close attention to what teachers are saying and thinking and feeling and base what I do off of that. So it's, it's pretty awesome work. I love it. 
Yeah, and you do it really well. Um, your podcast is how, actually, I found you through Jen Gonzalez. She talked about your 40-hour teacher work week, and that's how I first discovered you and your work. But then, of course, I started devouring your podcast. And you talk really openly about your own journey growing up through education. So I want to start there just to kind of give people your background and overview Introduce us to little Angela. Give us a little overview of who you were as a young person growing up in the school system. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I I went to private Christian school and I never really felt like I received like a child-centered education, right? Especially since this was in the 80s and 90s. And it was still very much, I think, a one-size-fits-all kind of education back then. And um, it turned out, we didn't discover it and actually test me for it until high school, but I had a learning disability in math. But I was also gifted. And so I was reading on a sixth grade level when I was five. (laughs) And I was extremely precocious. And my teachers just didn't really know what to do with me. And I also never stopped talking. (laughs) hence the podcast now I love it yeah yeah. (laughs) it works for me now um but I just I I don't really recall any of my teachers particularly liking me um or making a connection with me I always kind of felt like I was a a pain to them like I already I wasn't trying to be a know-it-all but I did know a lot of stuff that they were I mean they were I still had to do phonics drills I remember Mm -hmm. in first and second grade like phonics drills I'm like you know my teacher knew I was way beyond that but like so of course I'm going to play around. Of course I'm going to be off task. Of course I'm going to be distracting the other kids because I just wasn't challenged in that way. And then I think they also kind of assumed that because I was good in reading, I was also going to be good in all the other subjects. And that just wasn't true. So um, it was a challenge. And, you know, I think my teachers did the best they could. I think my parents did what they could to try to help me. But it just, the way that school is today, as many different criticisms that we can have of the way that we do school I think one really strong point today is that we're so much more welcoming of neurodivergent kids and so much more focused on individualizing and differentiating. And it's exhausting because, it, you know, it's a lot of work for a teacher and teachers aren't given the resources and support to do it well, but at least we're trying at this mm-hmm. point. And I feel like that's such an important shift in education that, you know, that, that we don't want to lose. We need to keep sight of that. Yes, that kind of work is tiring, but you know, the alternative is is treating all kids the same. And that just allows so many kids to fall through the cracks. The story that you tell of yourself as a young person is so, it's so interesting because in many ways you could say that the school system failed you and yet you're highly successful today. And I remember when you were first telling this story in your podcast, you reflected about how throughout all of this, you always saw yourself as a teacher. It wasn't like some kind of fallback profession or something you're like, what am I going to do with my life? You literally always saw yourself as a teacher. But why? Like, I want to know more about, maybe you don't have a clear sense of that now, but why did you always see yourself as a teacher? I think that's such an interesting question because you would think the answer is, well, I wanted to be the teacher that I needed when I was younger. I wanted to do better for for other kids than what I felt like was um, what I experienced. But, you know, that's not really true. Not at first. Anyways, I think I wanted to be a teacher as a little girl because teachers had all the fun. They got to make all the decisions. They got to run everything however they wanted or, you know, at least it felt like that to me as a student. And I wanted that power. 
And I think, frankly, that I was pushed to teaching too because it was a female-oriented profession. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't really raised to be ambitious. I wasn't raised to be career-oriented. I didn't have a lot of role models for that in my life. So I think on some level, I saw that if I wanted to have any power or control, I was going to need to be a teacher. And, you know, and I don't think that meant that I wanted to rule with an iron fist. I mean, I was an early childhood (laughs) major and I was trained in a very child-centered way of learning and Montessori methods, responsive classroom and so on. So from the very beginning, you know, it wasn't like I was in there on a power trip, but (laughs) I knew that I wanted to be in charge of something, you know, like I knew that much and teaching just seemed like the easiest, most familiar way to put myself in that position. And also, I really liked teaching other people's stuff I knew. Anytime I learned something, I immediately wanted to teach someone else, my neighbors, my little cousins, anyone. And I'm still that way today. As soon as I learn something, the first thing I do is I go tell somebody, guess what? And it's just like so exciting to share that. And I would also write books a lot as a child. I wrote entire Mm. books about the things that I knew. So When I look back now, there's a pretty clear line between what I wanted to be as a child and what I'm doing now, even though I could have never imagined it. I just knew I loved to teach people things. I loved to write, and I wanted to be in charge of stuff. So here I am. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you found your way here. I mean, I know that you had reflected that like your parents were a little bit stressed about you getting into university and that it's clearly worked out well for you. You're clearly in the right field, which I'm sure you feel that now that this is the right place for you. I do. And I feel like that's a really important takeaway. You know, when I shared a little bit of my story and how I struggled and nearly failed out of high school, when I shared that on my podcast, like one of the main things that I want teachers to keep in mind and that in my own, my, a way that my own experience guided me as a teacher was remembering that what you see in front of you with a child is not necessarily how their life is going to turn out. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of my high school teachers completely wrote me off. Like I just was never going to amount to anything. It was clear. I did not care about school. I was not focused. I never did any work. I skipped class all the time. Like there was nothing in, if you looked at me at age 14, 15, 16, you would never think one day she's going to run her own business. One day she's actually going to be like doing work in education. She's so disengaged from education. And that is such a good thing to remember as an educator. Like you don't know what these kids are going to grow up to do. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to write them off and say, well, they don't care. They're not engaged. But you know, those little seeds really kind of get through. And I think if I'd had even one teacher that I really connected with, it could have made a big difference. And that didn't happen for me till college. And I think college is probably why, like, that was a big part of why I started to actually like pay attention and go to class and do the things that I was supposed to do. Because not only was I learning about things I cared about, but also I had really great professors that, you know, that I felt like, I, I wanted to connect with them. I wanted to learn from them. And I felt like they believed in me and saw my potential. And the power of that in just one person, I think, just really can't be overstated. I'm also curious if, because you're like a pretty public figure in the world of education, were you ever kind of nervous about sharing that level of a personal story with your community? Yeah, I was not so much because I was worried what people would think of me not being a great student because I think a lot of people have that story. Mm-hmm. For me, I was more nervous about like all of the reasons why I wasn't a great student. Like that feels much more vulnerable to me. Like 
what were the things I was doing instead of being in class? <laughs> yeah. That's the stuff that is like that I, I'm still kind of working through all of that, honestly. Like, you know, the, the bad decisions a person makes as a teen and like healing from that and moving on from that. Because, it, you know, like you said, it seems like I kind of like have my stuff together right now. But um, it's, been a, it's been a long journey. It's been a long personal development journey. And that's part of why I'm so passionate about talking about personal development and and helping other people do that work because it was something that really I didn't come across until I was probably in my 20s. It just wasn't something I was really raised to think about or or trained in how to do and, um, you know, learning myself, learning what I want, what I need um, really has helped me show up as a better person. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing it. I think that that takeaway of we never know how our students will grow or take in the things that we're sharing with them is a really powerful takeaway. And I'm also just grateful that social media didn't exist when we were teenagers, because then we get to (laughs) choose to share these parts of ourselves. It doesn't have to be out there without our control. Yes. Uh, Let's talk about this year. I mean, we know it's been a hard year for everybody. I, I don't think that we can really quantify how much harder it's been for one person or another, but I just want to go out there and say, I feel like this has been an especially hard year for you. Like you've been personally impacted by COVID. You know, you've said goodbye to people in your life that you love. Um, your husband's a musician. He was out of work. I don't know if he's working now, but that is stressful. Everything that you know about how to coach people in education shifted. Um, you had to take a sabbatical this year. People were weird about you taking a sabbatical, which <laughs> I could have a whole nother podcast conversation about that. <laughs> I want to just, you know, take a look at this past year, and I'm curious from your perspective, your vantage point, what have you learned about education, teachers, and this system of schooling that we're in? You know, I love that you led with this idea of like, you know, we're not necessarily comparing or ranking suffering during this past year, because I mean, I have the privilege of working from home. So what I've been through, like, is just is in no way what so many teachers have gone through this past year. So there's been many ways, you know, that I that I was more privileged. And then, as you said, we've also experienced a lot of loss. My husband is just now starting to to work again. New York City is starting to reopen. That's awesome. Things are, the, yeah, people are like the the vibe is great, the mood is great. People are excited. You know, they're vaxxed and like ready to go at this point. <laughs> so uh, the the future is definitely looking bright. You know, and and, and things are are definitely better now. And my sabbatical helped a lot. It, that was during the month of December. I really just needed to step away from all of it because. As you mentioned, I just felt like um, my job is to help support teachers, and I don't know how to support teachers during all of this. There just is no good way to do this. And, you know, to be honest, the main thing that I feel like I learned since the pandemic about schooling is that we have a dire lack of visionary leadership, both in our government and in our school districts. Like the visionaries are just not in those roles. I think there's a sprinkling of really incredible folks, of course. There's always like pockets of liberatory work that are being done all over the place. But the qualities that we need in our leadership, just, um, you know, they don't, what we're looking for doesn't seem to include imagining something truly better than what we have. We have a whole lot of folks in power who are vested in maintaining the status quo. They're more interested in keeping their positions of power than doing the right thing. And it just, it was heartbreaking to me. And, you know, behind the scenes, I've, I've heard from a, a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of different people in education who just like, I'm so disillusioned, you know, mm-hmm. like I, 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 
I, there were so many signs that my district really didn't care about me. But this year, it just became impossible to tell myself any other story. Like it was just so clear that what's best for teachers and kids is not even in the realm of consideration for a lot of lawmakers and, and some district leaders. And I truly question whether many of them even understand what's best. I mean, I was stunned, Celeste, when I heard mm -hmm. superintendents approve of this idea of hybrid concurrent learning, oh, where we are live streaming what's happening in the classroom. Like, have you ever spent more than five minutes with a child trying to help them learn something? Like, five minutes. Anyone mm -hmm. who spent five minutes with a child could tell, like, there were going to be an... an insurmountable number of issues coming with that. So, I mean, I could go on, you know where I'm going with that, but mm -hmm. if change is going to come, it's going to come from folks who are visionary, who are capable of dreaming bigger than what we have now, people who want to reimagine systems. And we need more of those kinds of people in our classrooms, in our leadership, in our government. And it's exciting to me to see that happening again in pockets. And my hope is that the number of folks doing that kind of work increases because kids and teachers deserve better than what they're having to settle for right now. Oh, so many offshoot questions. How do we train people <laughs> to become visionaries? Because it takes a lot of cognitive bandwidth to dream. Like we know this, you know this from having to take the sabbatical. And, you know, you spent time just turning off school in order to dream. Like how do we train teachers who are in the classrooms, in the everydayness of it, to still be visionaries while they're running the show. It's that time off. It's exactly what you said. Like you can't do creative problem solving if you don't have any mental bandwidth and you have to have unstructured time. You have to have time in which you could, you know, go for a walk in which you can lay in bed and not immediately jump up, you know, hit the alarm, start getting running, you know, start getting running and moving for the day, but like be able to just lay there for five minutes you know, that to have these moments where you can actually think. And, you know, I actually, I have a webinar that I'm planning for the summer called Better Than Normal. And it's about how to craft an inspiring vision for the new school year. And it touches on this exact thing. You have to create that time for yourself over the summer in which you're not supposed to be doing anything and which your mind can just wander and you can daydream. That's the way that what's important will rise to the surface. And I make the argument in this webinar that part of the reason that this past school year was such a dumpster fire was because so few of our school leaders were given permission to or even thought to ask for that kind of time. And I posit what would have been different if our school leaders had been supported in saying, we need a week offline. We need mm -hmm. a week to stop going to press conferences and meetings and listening to this parent and this parent wants this and this teacher wants this and the superintendent said that and the government just changed this. I need a week away from all of that. I need to go out into the woods. <laughs> I need to have some silence away from the internet, away from all these people's opinions. And I need to get clear on what it is we're doing here. What is actually going to make a difference for teachers and kids? How can I support them? How can we make the best of what we have? I am convinced that not all of our school leaders are really even capable of that. As I said, some of them are just completely would freak out if they had that opportunity. But there are folks who would take advantage of it. And I think it, it could have made all of the difference this year. Because there's just no way that you can come up with good solutions to things when you're running ragged 24-7 and trying to please this person and that person and on the phone with this one and responding to this one's email. That's not visionary leadership. That's reactionary leadership. And everything that I'm describing 
is not how we do school. It's just not how most of our culture runs. So this is countercultural. It's not normal. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not accepted. Most people are not going to get it, but I'm convinced that it's really the only way forward. We have to be able to imagine something better and to be able to imagine something better, you have to have that space to rest. I mean, let's transition and talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with 40-Hour Teacher Work Week because it's so revolutionary. And I don't know anyone else who's doing the kinds of work that you're doing. Maybe you do because you're like in it. But I just feel like you're reconsidering, you're making teachers reconsider how they do their jobs. How do you think we got into this mess in the first place where teachers feel like if they're not constantly working, they're not a good teacher? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to the origins of the profession where if you were a teacher, I mean, and we're talking, of course, about American teachers in white schools, um, you know, in like the 1800s. If you were a teacher, you weren't allowed to be married. You weren't allowed to have children. You weren't allowed to have any other jobs or source of income. You could not be out after a certain time of night. Like you were really supposed to dedicate your entire life to this profession. And I that root of what teaching used to be, I feel like is still there today, particularly since it's a female dominated profession. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not supposed to have limits on what you give as a mom. Like you're just always supposed to put your children before you. And if you're a teacher, especially if you're a woman teacher, you just should always be thinking about the kids first. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been doable in the past, you know, kind of circling back to what we were talking about in the 80s and 90s. I don't think my teachers worked those super long hours. Like they worked more than their their contractual hours, sure. <laughs> but the demands on teachers have changed. And this process of trying to individualize, how do we accommodate neurodivergent kids? How do we accommodate kids with special needs, kids who are, you know, learning English and all these different things? Like the, the job has become more demanding because in part, I think we're doing a better job of trying to educate all children. And before we would just push out the ones or, you know, ignore the ones that didn't, you know, learn best the way that we were used to teaching. So I feel like the job has gotten more complex, not to mention all of the the data and the requirements. And then, you know, society has shifted to a way where now I think we question experts on everything. You know, it, it's like the amount of pushback that teachers get from parents now is, you know, that's sort of a trope at this point that like, you know, parents will always believe their child over a teacher and they think their kids do no wrong and the teacher is the villain. But that's, that's a larger societal shift. We see people don't trust scientists. They don't trust mm. the government. They don't trust you know, community people, they don't trust, they don't trust anybody, anybody who has a degree and training and experience in their field. Now we're saying, well, I'll just do my own research, which means I'm going to watch some videos on YouTube <laughs> or share an article from Facebook. And it trickles down to the teaching profession too. Teachers are not taken seriously because, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's seen like childcare in some ways, you know, but also because we just don't trust experts anymore. So I feel like the job of teaching has gotten more complex. The demands have increased and that's made it much harder to not work all the time. And then you take the root of the profession where it, teaching was expected to be the center of your world. It was a vocation. It was a calling. It's like becoming a nun, basically. Mm. That was the lifestyle you were meant to live. You don't need to get paid well for that. You don't need to have work-life balance. This is like you're dedicating your entire life to it. And that's not what this profession is anymore. It's so much more than that. So much more is being asked of people. And the daily work of teaching is so far removed from that calling, you know, of really like helping children learn and grow. It's like 
maybe number 10 on the priority list, you know, <laughs> there's like paperwork is number one, email is number two, like there's so many other distractions and things now. So it's so easy to just be working nonstop. And that is why I created the 40 hour teacher work week, which was back in 2015. And back then, I think a lot of people kind of saw it as like a gimmick. Um, and it could be from the name too. I really struggled with the name. I almost changed the name many times, but I felt like the average teacher is contracted to work around 40 hours a week. So that's what it's based on. How do we maximize those hours so you're not working endlessly on nights and weekends? And I, there was a perception, I think, in the beginning that it was for teachers who wanted to cut corners and didn't mm. want to do a great job for kids. But I mean, that never really rings true because if you don't want to do a great job for kids, you'll just sit at your desk and <laughs> And do nothing, right? Like you don't, you would never pay for a course yeah, I was and just do say. professional <laughs> development to learn how to like do a crappy job. Like that doesn't yeah, even Anyone who's sense. signing up for this is like deeply committed to excellence, but also to their own life. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a lot of type A people in there. Perfectionist people, like career educators who are just like, I cannot keep doing this. It just mm-hmm. gets worse and worse every year. I'm going to have to draw some boundaries. So I think, and over the last few years and particularly over this past year, I think more people have gotten receptive to the idea of it as they realize that, you know, the the way that we do school now would completely collapse if it were not for teachers' unpaid labor. Mm -hmm. We are dependent upon teachers working for free and paying for things out of their own pocket in in order to prop up an underfunded system. And I think teachers are sick of it. And and that, again, is also a, a societal cultural shift, right? Like we see essential workers, we see restaurant service workers, we see all these people that were allowed to be sort of undervalued and abused for years saying, okay, this is my breaking point now. I've had enough. What I saw during the pandemic just shone new light on what my true value is and how important I really am. And I'm going to ask for better. I've got to have better working conditions or else I'm just not going to do this job. And I see the same thing happening in, in, for, for teachers in a way that I find that very exciting mm. because this is going to have to be a movement, right? Like the only way for things to change is for teachers to say, no, we can't do this. Or, you know, you want me to, do, to add this additional thing to my plate? Okay, which of these other things do you want me to take off my plate? Which of these other things am I not going to do now? And in order for teachers to have the courage to do that, it has to be more than just them, right? You have to find at least one or two other people in your school. And hopefully that grows and it grows more over time until we hit this tipping point, just like we have in the in the service industry, right? There's this tipping point where it wasn't like everybody banded together in like a formal protest, but there just started to be more and more people saying, I'm not doing this job for this for these wages and these working conditions. I'm not doing it. And eventually employers had to start paying attention and offering incentives. And that's a more complicated situation. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I see a mirror to what's happening with teachers too. We're going to have to stand up and say, this isn't acceptable. There's a limit to how much I can do. And if you want me to do more than that, you're going to have to pay me more than that. God, I love your brain. I could literally <laughs> listen to you talk for 17 hours. So I think we might have to have like a 17 part episode here because <laughs> you just, you lay it out in such a clear, straightforward way. And I have to ask you this question. And if you don't know how to answer it, we can edit it out. Do you think if education was a male dominated profession, we would be here at this place? I think it would be different. I'm not sure exactly how. I think one of the main ways it would be different would be in this expectation of having to go above and beyond to prove that you care about kids because the expectation for women 
is different than the expectation for men. So if we look at like, what is the expectation of a good mom? You have to, like, the list is a mile long to be a good mom. To be a good dad, you could basically just play with your kids for an hour, give them a bath, and that's all you do. You know, like, you could send the kids to school, like, in mismatched clothes, hair all over the place, but he's still a good dad because he plays, you know, basketball with them after school or whatever. Like, caretaking is actually not within the realm of duties for a dad. It's not, you can be a good dad without being a good caretaker. A woman has to be a good caretaker, has to handle, like, the organization. The kid has to be clean. The house has to be clean. You have to be feeding healthy meals. A dad could get away with, you know, just giving the kid McDonald's and everyone be like, oh, well, he took care of dinner tonight. That's great. Like, the standards are different. And I, I'm talking, obviously, in generalities in, in the culture. This isn't obviously true of everyone and not everyone consciously believes that. But we do have different standards. And I see the different standards even between male and female teachers. And I notice that with 40-hour um, because there's not nearly as many men in in 40 hour as you would think. And we have done specific things to include men. Like I, I want every educator to see themselves represented in the program. So, you know, we, we have run ads that have male teachers talking about their workload. And, you know, I've, I've featured lots of videos of, of what, you know, men teachers are doing and all these kinds of things. But the fact is men don't feel that same pressure in their schools as women do to prove that they care about kids. Yeah. Um, even just the standards for, especially at the elementary level, decorating your room, you know, having this really amazing looking <laughs> room, what would be considered amazing for a male teacher would be like in a woman's, if a if you walked into a, a female teacher's room, you'd be like, why didn't she like decorate? What's going on? But for a man, it's like, ah, he's a guy, like whatever, he's not into that kind of stuff. And I feel like so many of the unpaid responsibilities in teaching are female stuff. It's It's like, it's caretaking, it's organization, it's cleaning, it's decorating, it's relationship building, all these things that we expect less of men. And so if a man were to leave at three or four o'clock, that would be okay. He's not going to feel that same pressure that a woman would. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't still have papers to grade or lessons to plan. That's the kind of stuff that I tend to hear men teachers saying that is taking up a lot of their time. But for women, a lot of the things taking up their time is that unseen, invisible labor, the emotional labor, the things that people don't even realize that they're doing. And that isn't, isn't even in the job description, but they just feel pressure to do it to show that they're in the profession for the right reasons. And if you're not in the profession for the right reasons, like the idea, the idea of being perceived that way, I think would just be a heartbreaker for just about any teacher. And I feel like women teachers are always on the edge of being perceived that way, of prioritizing themselves over children. Women are never supposed to do that. It's always supposed to be kids first. So that's one major way I feel like the profession would be different if it was majority men. Yeah, that's really well said. And just hearing you say this, it's just so clear how much of a visionary you are. Like you're the visionary leadership that we need and crave at this time. And I like that you actually have said explicitly that you devote time to thinking big and dreaming big. And you know, that terrible word that we all hate right now and reimagining Re education, <laughs> but you actually do it. It's not just like something that you're talking about. Like you clearly are spending time thinking about the big picture here. So two questions. What do you think is the purpose of school? And then what could be the purpose of school? I'm assuming that they may not be entirely aligned right now. <laughs> you know, I think the purpose of school is really to help prepare kids for whatever their dreams and aspirations are. 
So it's not about preparing kids for the workforce. And I think that's what a lot of times school is. That's what it has been historically. Um, but I think it should be about preparing them to help shape the workforce, to develop curiosity and critical thinking. I, I think those are two of the most important things kids can learn in school, to not immediately shut down when you hear something that doesn't make sense or that you don't agree with or is from a different lived experience than your own, but to get curious and wonder why, to explore, to experiment, to ask questions, research, compare, look for patterns. These are the types of skills that allow us to produce good citizens who can help us create a better world to live in. So when I think about the purpose of school, I really think about helping kids tap into their dreams, their aspirations, not what we want them to do or what we think they should do or to try to push them in a the direction, but to help them envision different possibilities for themselves so they're not just replicating everything they see around them so that they know they have other options and then helping them tap into those options in a way that makes sense for their personality and what they want to do with their lives so they can help create the world that that they want to live in. Do you know any schools that are actually doing that right now? Um, you know who keeps a really good eye on that, honestly, is Jen Gonzalez, as you I mentioned, from Cult of Pedagogy. She, she is one of my best friends, and we talk all the time, and she's always on the hunt for schools that are actually doing the thing, like, <laughs> like actually reimagining education, actually like doing restorative justice instead of, you know, suspending students left and right. Like she goes out and she finds those examples. Um, I'm not so good at doing that because I feel like I'm less, she, her expertise really is finding the awesome stuff that's working and curating it for people. Mm -hmm. For me, I feel like what I want to do is meet teachers exactly where they're at and help them create change within their own school. So for me, my, my personality, personality type is I get frustrated when I see actually like things that are working well, because I'm like, this could never work in X, Y, and Z. <laughs> I don't find it. She, Jen finds it like very inspiring. She's like, oh, but this school, but that means we could replicate this. We could replicate that. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Like that's her personality. My personality is like, I want to I want to find ways to shift who we are as people so the way we show up in our buildings can create our own version of something that's working. So it's like we kind of have a similar goal there but we're approaching it through different ways. I love that. And I love that you two are best friends. Like that just makes all of my teacher heart happy that like two <laughs> amazing people on the internet that I follow like each other and support each other. Tell me about this new phase for Truth For Teachers. You've hired kind of like a crew. I imagine that it's going to be like This American Life for Teachers, where there's like all these amazing people coming together to share things. Can you just give us like a bit of an overview of the new things that you're cooking up? Yeah. So Truth For Teachers is the name of the podcast. And the name of my website right now is The Cornerstone for Teachers, because that was the name of my first book back in 2008. It's called The Cornerstone Classroom Management That Makes Teaching More Effective, Efficient, and Enjoyable. So I just, I needed a name for the site. So that's <laughs> what I called it, The Cornerstone for Teachers. Like, oh, just love needed it. a URL. Um, but you know, it, it's not really clear exactly what that is. I've written several books since then. I'm not, you know, I, I wanted a different, I wanted to kind of move things in a different direction. And I thought about getting AngelaWatson.com. However, Angela Watson, the most famous Angela Watson was one of the daughters on Step by Step, that sitcom in the nineties. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's a good person to share your name with. 
yes, thank God she hasn't done anything embarrassing. In fact, she's like <laughs> not really even been like in the public space at all for like the last 20 years. But she still has that domain. Oh so I can't get AngelaWatson.com. I've tried so many times. So, okay, that's not going to work. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Actually, over the last couple of years, I realized, you know what? I don't actually want it to be all about me anyway. There's something about just like having the the website named after me that like, I don't know, I just didn't really love anyway, because I feel like it's about so much more than me. So I'm like, let me, let's go for truth for teachers. Like I already Mm. own that domain. Let's really, I think that really encompasses what it is that I'm trying to do. And so that was part of it. And then the other piece is wanting to bring in more perspectives, because as I mentioned, I, you know, I haven't been in the classroom since 2009. And I feel like one thing that, that teachers say to me, all the time, which is a which I take as the highest compliment ever, is you have not forgotten what it's like to be a teacher, mm. and it's mm. clear in everything you say and do, and that's really really important to me. So I, you know, I don't feel like I'm like this out of touch, you know, old old fogey or something like that. But there's just nothing like there's nothing like a person who's living it day in and day out. And obviously, things have changed a lot since I've been in the classroom, and it felt very important to me to feature more people who are in the classroom and not just like outside experts, outside consultants like myself, like the, the, the real experts, especially on pandemic teaching are the people who've actually done it. So on my podcast, I always try to feature as many practicing classroom teachers as possible so they can talk about their work. And I wanted to just expand that basically. I wanted to, to have more teachers write articles for the site and bring them on the podcast to talk about things that they'd written and really like have you know, feature as many different perspectives as possible. Because the other piece of that is obviously like, you know, I I have one lived experience. I have one racial identity. I have, you know, one gender. And I would love to feature, you know, different folks who experience teaching and experience the world differently because of who they are. And I think that's so, so important. So um, that's really what I've been building is like a team of classroom teachers who are talking about all the same things that I'm talking about, productivity, mindset, um, you know, practical teaching ideas, how to create change, equity, all those kinds of topics, but through their own lens. And I'm really, really excited to be featuring more of that. So we're working on it now, the official launch for the new Truth for Teachers site. The the whole cornerstone is going to be switched over in August, but um, we're starting to publish those articles now from this team of teachers. And I'm so excited to just have their expertise centered too. Are you going to do something to introduce them to the audience? Like, are you going to do some kind of like reveal of like these, this is our super team, like anything to like introduce us to them? Mm, I like that. (laughs) There's going to be a page on the site. Like they're each going to have their own like photo and their bio and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I should do some kind of fun reveal. I like that. Uh, Yes. There you go. Ideas (laughs) right here. Uh, Tell me what you're up to this summer with the 40-hour teacher work week, because I know that usually launches in July, if I'm correct. And you're also kind of doing something new with the instructional coaching program. Tell me more about those new projects. That's right. So 40-hour always launches in the summer. It's a year-long program so that you get ongoing PD. It's not just like throw a whole bunch of ideas at you that you forget about by the time the school year starts. We've sort of like pace it out throughout the year so people don't get overwhelmed and we tackle one thing at a time, just streamlining grading, then just streamlining lesson planning, that sort of thing. So yeah, it starts in July. Um, We have like early bird enrollment in June. 
Um, and then this year, as you mentioned, we are going to have a 40-hour instructional coaching program and also 40-hour leadership, which I'm really excited about. That's been in the works for two years, and I put it on hold because of COVID. I was like, I can barely support teachers for this past year. There's no way I can say anything to administrators right now. But um, you know, I really took that time to regroup. I did a lot of consulting with administrators since that time, and um, I am so excited about this program because it's going to help shift expectations school-wide. We've got to change the culture in our schools um, and the expectations for teachers. Like there's so much wasted time. When I just think about like the way meetings are done in schools, just meetings alone. That's Mm. another thing that has increased so much, right? Like I don't think our teachers when we were in school were like having like five, six, seven, eight hours a week of meetings. It's nonstop. You never have planning time. You never have your time after school. We have to do better by teachers. And that's one of the core foundations in that program is like how do for administrators like how do we protect our teachers planning time how do we make sure they're getting a break during the day because nobody can teach well for six hours straight how can we protect that planning time and how can we make sure they have as much time as possible to plan lessons if lesson planning is one of the most important things a teacher can do if you don't have good lesson plans nothing else matters right Mm -hmm. but yet we make teachers do it on their own time unpaid because there's no time during the school day this Mm -hmm. is nuts to me we cannot do that so (laughs) i I have so much i could say about that i'm obviously very (laughs) fired up about this leadership program but there are administrators who are ready for this I know there are administrators who are ready for this. Some are not. Some are, they're not. That's okay. Like they'll, they'll get on board eventually. We're going to start changing the culture in education one school at a time. We'll start with the innovators, the people who are ready, the people who want to be visionaries and imagine a new way of doing school. And we'll just, again, hit that tipping point where eventually there's enough people doing it where the whole culture shifts in education. That's my mission. And this is one small thing that I'm doing basically to help that mission um, come alive. So it's all at 40htw.com, 40htw.com. You can learn about 40-Hour Teacher Work Week, the Instructional Coach Program, and the Admin Coach, which is called 40-Hour Leadership. I just have this vision of teachers who have gone through the 40-Hour Teacher Work Week Club and then become administrators and then get yes. their whole schools on board. Like, I mean, this is how change happens. It it starts from the ground up, but then it really takes off once people at the top are also promoting and modeling and demonstrating how this stuff works. And I I love that you're thinking about it from all key stakeholders in education. It's It's so exciting that this is growing. Yeah. And people have been telling me to do it for years. And I just, I didn't feel like I could do it. I just felt like, well, I don't know, because I've never been a principal, blah, 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 blah. And eventually, like, you know, a teacher just told me like, Angela, if you don't do it, who's going to do it? Like, what yeah. what are we waiting for here? And I realized like, I know more than someone else and someone else knows more than me. And we can like learn together. You know, I don't have to have it all figured out. But right now I feel like administrators are getting basically zero support in this area. So if I can provide just a little bit, it's better than what they have now. So I'm going to get it out there. This is going to be our beta year and we're going to just go for it. And then, you know, iterate from there, just take their feedback, develop the program together and make it into something truly, truly amazing. Because as you said, like no one else is really doing this. And it it makes me so sad. It's like productivity is not even the goal. Being more efficient is not even the goal. Because again, it might make you look like you don't care about kids, right? If you're trying to like do less or you want to simplify, why don't you 
don't you care about the kids? Don't you want to be here? Don't you want to be doing all those things? So just challenging that narrative, there's so much mindset work around it. And the mindset piece, I'm really good at. So that's what I'm really <laughs> passionate about. That's what I really love. If we can change hearts and minds, we can change anything. And that's what I really want to do this year with all the different 40-hour programs. And if there's anything good to come out of this pandemic, I think that, I hope that it's this idea that we're rethinking how we engage with work in our life. Like now that mm. we're all, I mean, in Ontario, we've been working from home or living at work for the last little while. And it's, I think we're ready. I think people are more ready for these conversations than ever before. So I think that, I think we're almost at the tipping point right now. And I'm really yes. excited that you're, you're tipping the balance in the right direction. <laughs> okay. So we're going to close off with the ticket out the door. Are you ready for random rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Okay. What is something you are grateful for right now? I am grateful for the forest, for nature, trees, getting to be outside is just so restorative for me. It's the best. Hmm. What is the first thing you do when you wake up? Uh, usually look for my cat. <laughs> <laughs> what is the last thing you do before you go to bed? Mm, I'm usually listening to the Calm app, sleep stories. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> They're amazing. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be and why? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know why strawberries just came to mind first. So I'll go with that, but I don't know why. It just came to me. <laughs> that's nice. Who is your dream podcast guest? Dead or alive? I should say that too. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like sorry, I opened it up wider for you. <laughs> um you know one person actually that is alive and that I could be having and that I've tried to reach out to but never got back to me is Dr. Bettina Love, who wrote the book Ooh. We Wanna Do More Than Survive. I'm still yes. determined to get her on my show. Yes. I love She's it. Amazing. We'll start the campaign. We'll start tweeting at her. <laughs> uh, what is the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Um, probably Schitt's Creek. That's a good yes, one. Yes. Yes. It's I watched it like three times. <laughs> I feel like I own a piece of it as a Canadian. So it's oh, right. <laughs> so good. It's so good. Uh, what would be your last meal on earth? Probably pizza. I love pizza. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially in your New York. Like, oh my goodness. So good. Yes. What, and this is the last question. I ask everybody this as we close out. So it's a big one. Take it whichever angle you want to. But what do you think is the future of learning? I think the future of learning is more compassionate, more individualized, more human-centered more focused on well-being and preparing kids to balance life and work, not just preparing them to be good employees or, you know, good, you know, workers in our, in our system or making money and upholding the status quo. I hope that the future of learning is helping kids to tap into what it is that they're really passionate about and follow curiosity. I think we need more curiosity more wonderment, less judgment, more awe, more fascination. And I hope that's where the next era of schooling is going because that's what I see kids care about. Mm. I want t-shirts that say more wonderment, less judgment. We mm. should make those. Yes. I think that is a great vision to end on. Thank you for your time. You are just a wonderful human being, and I am so grateful to get to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Well, thank, thank you. you. I feel the same way about you. I so appreciate you having me. Wasn't that just the best? 
Ugh, it's so good. I'm likely going to be listening back to this episode a few times over because I just so believe in the work that Angela is doing and the vision that she has for teaching and learning. If this landed with you, share it with someone you think would like it. And tag me and Angela in your post so we can get in on the fun. The 40-hour teacher workweek was a game changer for me in my practice. You can access links to join the club in the show notes and to find out more about Angela Watson. I'm not sponsored by her. I'm not making a commission here. I just really believe in the work she's doing and see it as a revolutionary approach to supporting teacher wellness. The last thing I will ask from you is to pop into Apple Podcasts and give the show a rating and review. I love getting to be part of your runs, your drives, your cleaning up the kitchen time. This is literally the best hobby ever. If you've listened to a few episodes and are getting something valuable from these conversations, giving a rating and review is like you completing the loop and letting me know what's working for you and what could be even better. While you're there, give a few other shows that you listen to a rating and review. Your good deed for the day will be done and you can feel that warm sense of internet love from me to you. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep sharing that wonderment and remember we are teaching tomorrow.